and we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 211, aka season 3, episode 31, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, and MC is still out uh, dealing with some family issues, so we wish uh, him and his family the best, uh, and we'll welcome him back as soon as possible. I'm not even sure if it's going to be next week or not. He's been out for a while, and uh, I get updates from him. And everything seems to be okay, but he's just not in a position to participate uh, in the show as usual. So just me in the hot seat this week. That means podcast only, no phone numbers, and yet another rousing edition of Richie Rich Reads the News. Um, A lot of stuff going on personally for me this week, so not a lot of... um, interesting things going on just way too busy to to do a lot of uh participation i guess in what's going on out there so kept to myself mostly got a lot of stuff done personally um so here's the news headline oh yeah this was a big one in the news so we'll do our best to to comment on this little story uh headline exposing collateral murder and mass surveillance why the world should be grateful to Assange. That's Julian Assange. Uh, Headline, one reason the modern left keeps winning, uh, they think, long term. Headline, uh, name the state. Headline, you elected them to write new laws. They're letting corporations do it instead. Uh, Headline, the populist temptation. Headline, the Elon Mordita. Uh, headline, how capitalists, unlike environmentalists, make life easier for the disabled. And finally, headline, they said this law would fix blight, blighted neighborhoods. Instead, it's being used to steal people's homes. Uh, we'll jump right into it. And I don't know, there, the, you know, one thing that happens when MC's out is I look for uh, more long form articles uh for a couple of reasons number one it's uh for the you know for the attention span um that we do so when when we try to get mc's thoughts on things um i try to keep the articles relatively short so that we can get his his thoughts and comments on them um but when he's not here then i i feel like i can focus on some of the more uh academic for, for lack of a better term, um, information that's out there. And then I, I use that opportunity to get those documented and read on the air for you guys to, to hear. Um, with that being said, a lot of times the academic articles are uh, substantially longer um, and they're more well-written. For uh, So I, I, I don't usually have a lot to comment on them because it's more informational as opposed to uh, current event worthy. Uh, so I'll do my best to to give the brief commentary when I can. Um, but I wanted to get to a bunch of these today. So let's do our best to, to get through them. Um, and if you have comments on them, um, you know, listen to the end of the show where you can find out where to do that. Um, and you can always use the call in numbers when I do give them out. Uh, they're posted on the website, anarchistexperience.com. Uh, call in, leave a, leave a voicemail. Uh, we'll, we'll listen to it and we'll either talk about what you said uh, or play that for you on air. So go ahead and take care of that if you have anything valuable uh, to add to what I'm already saying. Now, let's get into this. Um, it'll probably come out in the article, but just, just so you're aware, if you haven't been, it's been all over the news. Um, Julian Assange, uh, his. Uh, status, uh, his asylum status in Ecuador was rescinded. Uh, he was arrested and extradited for prosecution to the United States. Um, there's a lot of articles around that, but this one itself, exposing collateral murder and mass surveillance, why the world should be grateful uh, to Assange. Um, regardless of you know what you feel about him personally, uh, it, it should be noted that WikiLeaks has been a benefit uh, to public political discourse. Uh, and that, and you know, this is more an attack on the freedom of the press and freedom of speech than anything else that Julian Assange has done personally. And that's my little mini commentary. So let's get into it. Why the world should be grateful to Assange. Julian Assange is a pioneering whistleblower in the digital age, speaking truth to power like no one before him managed on such a significant scale. As he sits in a London jail cell, here's why we should be grateful for his work. By setting up the international nonprofit organization WikiLeaks in Iceland in 2006, Assange irrevocably shifted the balance of power in the online area era. 
from humble beginnings as a master coder and hacker caught by Australian authorities in 1995, but escaping a prison term to the foremost publisher of sensitive, embarrassing, and potentially dangerous material for the world to see. Assange's storied career as a publisher and whistleblower has captured headlines and the global public's attention for years. The early years. In 2007, WikiLeaks published emails exposing the manuals for Camp Delta, a controversial U.S. detention center in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which was the focal point for the U.S. war on terror and the final destination for those captured as part of its extraordinary rendition campaigns. The following year, the whistleblowing site posted emails from Vice President candidate Sarah Palin's private Yahoo email account, again exposing the newfound weakness of the political class in the digital age. Collateral murder. In a move that would reverberate online and across the world for years, in April 2010, WikiLeaks published footage of the U.S. forces summarily executing 18 civilians from an Apache attack helicopter in Iraq. It was almost unheard of, of a, re a revelation of the brutality of war and the low price of human life in modern conflict. Diplomatic Cables. 2010 was a very busy year for Assange, as in July, WikiLeaks published more than 90,000 classified documents and diplomatic cables relating to the Afghanistan war. Later in October 2010, the organization published a raft of classified documents from the Iraq war. These, the logs were referred to as the largest leak of classified documents in its history. By the U.S. Department of Defense, according to the BBC, WikiLeaks followed up that up in November by publishing diplomatic cables from the U.S. embassies around the world. The Guantanamo Files and Spy Files. Uh, in April 2011, WikiLeaks published classified U.S. military documents detailing the behavior and treatment of detainees held at Guantanamo Bay. This leak would be followed once again by a vast trove, 250 million of U.S. diplomatic cables. Throughout this sequence of widely praised leaks, Assange invited a global audience behind the curtain of international diplomacy and warfare to expose the hidden truths of global power dynamics in a way which would forever change the power structure and landscape, affording a platform to analysis like Chelsea Manning to expose potential war crimes and misdeeds by the U.S. military at large. Assange and WikiLeaks would also help fellow whistleblowers like Edward Snowden to seek refuge from predatory U.S. authorities, providing aid and comfort to those who risked everything in pursuit of truth, exposing some of the most egregious mass surveillance programs the world has ever known. DNC leak. As the 2016 U.S. presidential election loomed, WikiLeaks published nearly 20,000 emails from the Democratic National Committee, which exposed the preferential treatment shown to then-candidate for president Hillary Clinton over her competitor, Bernie Sanders, in the Democratic primary. Assange boldly informed CNN's Anderson Cooper that the release was indeed timed to coincide with the Democratic National Convention. In October that same year, WikiLeaks began publishing emails from Clinton's campaign manager, D John Podesta, which shed light on the inner workings of the Democratic ne nominee's political machine. These included excerpts from Clinton's speeches to Wall Street, politically motivated payments made to the Clinton Foundation, her consideration of choosing Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates or his wife as a potential running mate, her desire to covertly intervene in Syria, her intentions to ring-fence China with missile defense batteries if it did not curtail North Korea's nuclear ambitions. Legacy Following his arrest on the morning of April 11, 2019, Assange's future remains unclear. He likely faces extradition to the U.S. where it was inadvertently revealed that he has been charged under seal in a U.S. federal court. Former Assange collaborator Chelsea Manning has been in prison for refusing to cooperate with the court in relation to, this, to the case. Assange's legal battle is only just the beginning, it seems, but the international following he has forged will undoubtedly grant him a place in the pantheons of history, champions of truth. He remains a true digital pioneer, paving the way for so many to follow in his footsteps and expose the untold misdeeds of the powerful, be they, be they political figures or entire militaries. Assange has defiantly shown what a powerful tool digital technology can be and how easily the, the dynamic of power can be shifted in the 21st century by those brave enough. Unfortunately, he has also shown the consequence of wielding such power in the face of such overwhelming international and political opposition. Uh, end of the article. So again, as you can see uh, from the article, he's done a lot um, to inform the public of what's going on uh, behind the scenes and to their detriment. And for that, he is being persecuted and prosecuted, uh, again, for that. 
and the the message that that sends to the rest of the uh, media, the press, is uh, you know it's been said is to toe the line, shut your mouth, and only report on on what we what we tell you you can report on. Um, there's no more in, uh, investigative journalism allowed. There's no more uh, seeking to find the truth. Uh, that's one thing to note that the, the article didn't note um, is that in the era of fake news uh, and unreliable media reports, um, WikiLeaks ha- has been, I, I believe, 100 percent accurate in everything that it has reported since its inception. Um, they've never had to retract. They've never had to uh, go back on what they said or issue a retraction uh, or anything like that. What they report has always been verified to be 100 percent true. Uh, and for that, you know, they should be praised and Unfortunately, because of that, uh, the the powers that be have persecuted not not only the site, uh, but the man himself, uh, and that you know that should not stand. And we'll see you know what happens and whether or not the the citizenry, uh, I guess, is willing to rise up uh, from the from the anarchist perspective. Right? It it's it can be used for by us as a tool to illustrate to the masses uh, exactly what your government and their government and our government, uh, you know, is doing uh, behind the scenes, especially when it comes to the wars fought overseas. And, you know, if you're if you're into the election cycle uh, to that as well, it shows you just how um, violent and depraved the military is when fighting wars overseas, what those wars are about, what they do to hide the truth uh, and and. You know, will WikiLeaks go on without Julian Assange? Absolutely. But just like any other well-known organization, he was definitely the figurehead. um, And it remains to be seen how his arrest will impact that going forward. Um, But I hope it doesn't. I hope it gets even I hope it gets even more vital uh, of a tool used by us and anarchists and and free people the world over to illustrate to the, you know, the the sheeple. When was the last time you heard that term? Uh, to the sheeple out there of what exactly is going on uh, behind closed doors, behind their back, and out of sight for them to see. Uh, and so Julian Assange, in my opinion, again, f- for this stuff, and I don't want to get into you know the 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 negative aspects of what he's done, not because they don't weigh in, um, but I don't want those. Um, I don't want those accusations, uh, true or not. Uh, to taint the positive work that he has done. Is he 100% good guy? Probably not, but who is? Um, but we can't let those things take away from all the good that he's done, um, which another re- is another reason why I always say uh, don't, you know, don't, put the, don't put the man on a pedestal, put the ideas on a pedestal, and the ideas of WikiLeaks and the concept of WikiLeaks for what it does for press freedom and responsible journalism uh, far outweighs uh, anything that an individual human being who is, you know, flawed uh, can can be held responsible for. So WikiLeaks um, and the ideas and the concept started should be highly praised, even if uh, the man starting it is a little less than perfect. Uh, and then again, who is? All right, moving on. <clears throat> One reason the modern left keeps winning, they think long term. Uh, and I don't, I don't want this to turn into uh, a left versus right thing, um, only because uh, as an anarchist, when it comes to the, you know, the left, I've all, you know, I think Lou Rockwell said it. Uh, it's not the left versus the right; it's the state versus you. Um, but it, it, it is important to point out that, you know, I will get into it with the article. Um, but one of the the reasons, you know, people sometimes will ask me, well, why do you, why do you wave the anarchist flag? Uh, and my answer is always because someone needs to maintain the idea of the long-term goal, right? I need to be so far out on the extreme for freedom and liberty um, that everything else, you know, all the other lower extremes look moderate in comparison to mine. And therefore, uh, someone referred to it as like shifting the Overton window. And I'm not sure that's exactly accurate, um, but whatever. Um, I want to I want to move the discourse more towards freedom and away from statism as much as possible. Um, and if you look at me and you go, wow, that guy's crazy. He's on the extreme. Um, then yeah, then all the other people pushing for, you know, better policy positions uh, seem reasonable in comparison. Uh, and we try to move more toward freedom. Uh, but at the same time, 
you know, when issues like uh, marijuana legalization come up and I go like all drugs, right? You know, it's not that I don't want the, the current drug to be legalized and I don't recognize that as a victory for freedom. Um, it's that I, I want to make sure that the end goal still remains, right? 100% liberty, complete freedom for all people all the time. And as long as, you know, if, if people are looking short term, like, oh yeah, we got our marijuana decrim and like, that's the, the fight's over. Um, then that's not good enough for me. So in, in, in line with the article, uh, the, the left, as this article will point out, um, which, you know, again, goes, can go for the right, but the, the, we're specifically talking about, um, leftist type positions in this article. Uh, they, they always focus on the long-term goal, um, Whereas, you know, the, the people on the right tend to look for the short-term gains, the short-term benefits. So here we go. One reason the left keeps winning, they think long-term. The modern left, excuse me. The Mises Institute is notable for publishing articles supporting a number of radical views, including, among other positions, abolition of the central bank, radical reduction in military spending and military action overseas, radical decentralization of political power through secession, nullification, and robust federalism, adoption of untrampled free trade. These, posi- these positions all reflect positions held by liberal schools of thought in the past, whether the Manchester School, the American Anti-Federalist, or the French Liberal School. In various times and places, these views have even met with varying degrees of success. Nevertheless, to the modern ear, these views sound incredibly radical, and the end goals generally sound exceedingly unlikely to be realized in the near future. And yet this is where advocates for freedom and free markets usually take a wrong turn. For some reason, many non-leftists, whether libertarians, conservatives, or milquetoast centrists, embrace the notion that a position on public policy ought not be expressed unless, unless there is a chance that it can be realized in the very near future. I hear this often from critics, and to see it often in the comments section of the Mises.org in social media. The routine is usually the same. The author expresses support for a change in public policy that would significantly change the status quo. A reader expresses agreement with the sentiment. The same reader then contends that achieving this goal is unlikely in the short term. The same reader then asserts that one shouldn't even bother expressing support for this position because it's unlikely to be realized in the short term. The final sentiment usually looks something like this. That's a fine idea, but it's not going to happen, so just forget it. Another variation is, people don't agree with you right now, and it's hopeless to try to convince people otherwise, so just give up. Rothbard, what we can learn from the abolitionists. Note that in this way of thinking, the attitude is to immediately declare defeat and to abandon the goal because achieving the goal looks to be difficult. As far as I can tell, this is a very common attitude. This sort of knee-jerk defeatism helps offer a clue as to why enemies of the left tend to adopt a pessimistic and paranoid point of view. They have trouble even imagining success, let alone attempting to achieve it. This attitude, of course, is the opposite of that used by a variety of successful political movements, including that of the abolitionists. In the article for the Libertarian Review in 1968, Murray Rothbard looked at the method of the abolitionists for insights on how to pursue policy goals that appear seemingly impossible at first. Rothbard noted that from the early days of the abolition movement, the end goal appeared far-fetched and extremely unlikely. Thus, the only immediate victories to be had were small and piecemeal. A gradualist method was forced on the abolitionists, but as Rothbard noted, the goal was never gradualist. It was always for immediate and total abolition. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison was not being unrealistic when in the 1830s he raised the glorious standard of immediate emancipation of the slaves. His goal was the proper one, and his strategic realism came in the fact that he did not expect his goal to be quickly reached, or as Garrison himself distinguished, urge immediate abolition as earnestly as we may. It will, alas, be gradual abolition in the end. We have never said that slavery would be overthrown by a single blow, that it, that it ought to be, we shall always consent. Similarly, for those who want radical reduction in state power today, they must adopt a similar posture. Always maintain the explicit and public goal of radical change while accepting small and gradual victories. Rothbard quotes uh, Aileen Creditor, who writes, It follows from the abolitionist conception of his role in society that the goal for which he agitated was not likely to be immediately realizable. Its realization must follow conversion for of an er, 
excuse me, its realization must follow conversion of an erroneous, enormous number of people, and the struggle must take place in the face of the hostility that inevitably met with the agitator for an unpopular cause. The abolitionists knew as well that their later scholarly critics that immediately an unconditional emancipation could not occur for a long time. But unlike those critics, they were sure it would never come unless it were agitated for during the long period in which it was impractical. To have dropped the demand for immediate emancipation because it was unrealizable at the time would have been to alter the nature of the change for which the abolitionists were agitating. That is, even those who would have gladly accepted gradual and conditional emancipation had to agitate for immediate and unconditional abolition of slavery because that demand was required by their goal of demonstrating to white Americans that Negroes were their brothers. Once the nation had been converted to that point, conditions and plans might have been made. Their refusal to water down their visionary slogan was, in their eyes, eminently practical, much more so than the course of the anti-slavery senators and congressmen who often wrote letters to abolitionist leaders justifying their adaptation of anti-slavery demands to what was attainable. This position, then, has the added benefit of a small gradual victories are achieved, constantly pressuring the moderates and pushing the, their middle even more in the desired direction. Rothbard continues. From a strictly strategic point of view, it is also true that if the adherents of the pure goal do not state that goal and hold it aloft, no one will do so, and the goal, therefore, will never be attained. Furthermore, since most people and most politicians will hold to the middle of whatever road may be offered them, the extremist, by constantly raising the ante and by holding the pure or extreme goal aloft, will move the extremes further over and will therefore pull the middle further over in his extreme direction. Hence, raising the ante by pulling the middle further in his direction will, in the ordinary pulling and hauling of the political process, accomplish more for that goal, even in the day-by-day short run, than an opportunistic surrender of the ultimate principle. It is important to accept partial victories, however, without sending the message that a partial victory is sufficient. In our view, the proper solution to this problem is a centrist or movement-building solution. Namely, that is, it is legitimately and proper to advocate transition demands as a way stations along the road to victory, provided that the ultimate goal of victory is always kept in mind and held aloft. In this way, the ultimate goal is clear and not lost sight of, and the pressure is kept on so that the transitional or partial victories will feed on themselves rather than appease or weaken the ultimate drive of the movement. Thus, suppose that the libertarian movement adopts as a transitional demand an across-the-board 50% cut in taxation. This must be done in such a way as to not imply that a 51% cut would somehow be immoral or improper. In that way, the 50% cut would simply be an initial demand rather than an ultimate goal in, it, in itself, which would only undercut the libertarian goal of total abolition of taxation. Note also that the abolitionist recognizes the importance of demonstrating the rightness of their position and in that he that the public needed to be converted. Unlike modern conservatives and great many libertarians, the abolitionists did not assume that those who disagreed with them would always disagree with them. It is not uncommon to hear, however, the assumptions among many conservatives and libertarians that trying to explain to people the rightness of the pro-freedom position is a lost cause. For people who think like this, the only hope is to preserve the status quo for as long as possible, although this is obviously a losing battle. The mere thought of expanding the popularity and prominence of their position is assumed to be outlandish. Needless to say, an ideological group that thinks like this will always be a group of losers. Unfortunately, many on the side of freedom and free markets have completely lost sight of the value of the abolitionist way of doing things. This leads to any number of self-defeating views. Some maintain that one must remain totally agnostic about all policy changes unless that change brings about total and immediate victory in all respects. Thus, we hear about some libertarians who refuse to support any tax cuts as long as the tax cut is not a 100% tax cut. Another unfortunate result might be quietism, in which some assert it's pointless to say anything at all because short-term victory appears unlikely. So better to just give up now. Still, others won't bother with any sort of activism if victory is victory will require more than a few months of effort. Note, of course, that the modern left doesn't think this way. Consider the matter of health care, for example. For years, leftists advocated for ever greater government intervention in health care. Indeed, Obamacare had originally been put forward in the form of Hillary Care back in the 1990s. This itself came after many years of activism in favor of government-controlled health care. 
Hillary Care was defeated, but the left continued to agitate endlessly for universal health care of one type or another. Nor did this effort even stop when Obamacare was adopted. For many on the left, Obamacare wasn't universal enough. So five minutes after Obamacare was signed into law, the next step for the left was devised. Obamacare is a step in the right direction, they said, but the next step is now single-payer health care. Advocates for even greater government control of the healthcare system didn't even skip a beat. Immediately after achieving a partial victory, the drive toward the next goal continued unabated. It's not hard to see why the left regarded by many of optimistic and visionary, while the right is seen as adrift and lacking discernible goals whatsoever. Meanwhile, many conservatives and libertarians search constantly for a reason to give up and quit and to encourage others to do the same. Uh, end of the article. And that Obamacare, Hillary Care is just one of the examples given in the article. The, the idea remains the same. Uh, you know, when uh, I'll go back to the, the marijuana thing, right? Um, after, you know, after decrim and legalization happens, uh, the, the fight kind of ended, right? There was no push uh, from conservatives, libertarians of the right, you know, to continue on and to legalize all drugs, right? Marijuana decrim is a step in the right direction. Now let's repeal all other uh, you know, prohibitions on drugs, um, regardless of what those drugs may be or how, how, how harmful, uh, you find them to be. So, it, you know, just this one example, we get more freedom and everyone gets, uh, gets all happy. And then the article, you know, the, the more articles come out about how it's how even the decrim, um, you know, is sufficient, but because it's state controlled decrim, it's, you know, doesn't even compare to the black market and the black market still wins and so on and so forth. Um, they go, see, it didn't work. Um, no need for that. Just let the black market do its thing. Um, which is fine by me, right? Like I'm, I'm all in favor of black markets. Uh, but the, the push still has to be made. Um, you know, for a while I drove around that as long as we're on the drug issue, I drove around with a bumper sticker that said legalize crystal meth. Um, and it was it was twofold, right? It used to irk people because who wants that? Number one, right? It's a very unpopular opinion. But the people that decided to stop and talk to me and find out why, um, you know, got the whole like everyone's an individual and everyone should have a right to put in their body what they so choose because that's what freedom is all about. Um, and to deny people that is to take away their freedom uh, to do as they please, and that is oppression, right? And the people you know, and and for other people who you know understood. The, the concept of it. And if you're, if you're not aware, uh, crystal meth, the street drug or methamphetamine is already FDA approved. So it was another thing where they go, well, you can't have legal crystal meth. I go, well, you technically already do. It's, you know, the street stuff, maybe not so much, but they, they do, they do make it in labs and they, they do prescribe it. And it is, you know, it is, um, uh, it is, you know, recognized by the FDA as a treatment for, uh, was it 80, 80 HD and obesity at the time, uh, and probably still is the case. So it, it was another thing to highlight the fact that, you know, prohibiting the street drug, um, is just a, you know, it's just like a poor tax on people who, you know, can't afford to get the, the, the doctor prescribed version of it, uh, as well. So it was, it was a tool again to push the extreme position. Um, and I, th I think, you know, personally, I always thought that that was more extreme than legalize all drugs. Um, uh, because the people don't have like such a visceral um, and emotional attachment to the you know the term all drugs, but if you say crystal meth uh, in most places uh, like where we're living now it might be heroin legalize heroin, uh, right? Because there's an epidemic just about everywhere you go. Like watch out for needles on the street, you know that kind of nonsense. Uh, so it, you know, if, and and to get the message out there, you have to you have to get people like emotionally attached to that that you know visceral reaction, um, you know to to get their number one, to get their attention and to get them to start thinking. Um, and again, you know, just like the article said, kind of reiterated what I said in the beginning before that, before I got into the article and that's the constant push, right? Okay. That's great. But now what? Right. Okay. And one of the things I was talking to some of the, you know, the political members of the movement, uh, here in New Hampshire, where I currently reside, um, you know, because it, it's currently a, a heavy left, uh, democratic, um, local government in the state government. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of push for a lot of like, uh, freedom stealing leftist agenda items. And, you know, talking to them, I go like, 
what's the deal with that? You know, where's, where's the pushback? And he goes, well, at some point they vote back in the Republicans and the Republicans repeal the worst of the Democratic agenda um, and then push some of the Republican agenda and then they vote Democrat and Democrats repeal the worst of the Republican agenda and push, you know, more of the, the left Democratic agenda. And it, it kind of like flip flops back and forth. So there's no real consistency uh, with what's going on in the local government, but you can be sure. Um, that if it's really that bad, uh, it'll eventually be repealed by the next administration kind of a thing. Right. And I went, well, that's stupid, right? Let's, let's, you know, let's push for freedom and then keep pushing for freedom. Uh, but you know, not being in the, not being a political activist, right? Like I just, I hold the goalpost, you know, at the extreme end, I go like, all right, you guys come to me. Right. I'm not I'm not moving towards you. I'm not moving toward the centrist or the middle of the road or the, you know, like the, I think the article used the word milk toast uh, version of whatever we're trying to do. I will hold the goalpost all the way out there um, and, you know, 100 percent freedom all the time. And if you get close to the goalpost, like, you know, I'll give you a quick golf clap, you know, a proverbial golf clap for you uh, for getting that far. But in no way uh, is, is that the end of it. Right. Then 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 we can move the goalpost. Right. Like, let's let's get a whole bunch of freedom passed so that no one ever wants to go back to, you know, not freedom again. Uh, you know, even uh, what was the, the big ones was like, you know, they're, they're trying to do an income tax. Right. And we hear about the income tax. And I go, well, that's stupid. Right. That's that's part of uh, the New Hampshire advantage. Right. That's part. You know, there, there is no income tax here, um, you know, on, on the state level, at least. And I go, well, they can't pass that because that's, you know, then what? Like what else? What else does this place have, you know, to to attract people uh, who want freedom? I mean, it does have a lot. There's 101 reasons. You know, that's a, a big one as well. Uh, but I, I think, you know, not paying your money to the state for nonsense uh, goes a long way. And to the point where, uh, you know, as soon as we heard about it, M goes like, are we going to move back home now? Because I know that was one of the reasons. If if wages don't keep up with, you know, where we could be, you know, like uh, in, in other places of the country, despite the, you know, the no tax advantage, well, then what, what sense does it make, right? If, you know, especially in uh, other East Coast cities like Boston and New York or whatever, they may they may tax you more. Uh, but if they're paying you a lot more then it's a net gain, you know, you pay the tax and you still benefit. Um, and with the, um, what I considered the, uh, the suppression of wages here in New Hampshire, at least in, in my experience, um, if they tax on top of that, there's no way, there's no way it's worth it. Like one of the reasons it's beneficial and the, you know, I, I can somewhat see the, the, uh, suppression of wages being uh, acceptable is you may be able to make more elsewhere, but if they tax you more then your net gain is still here, uh, with, with slightly lowered wages. Uh, but if they tax you on top of that, well then there's, you know, the, 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 you have to look at all the other benefits to, to make the move. And I'm not sure if they all add up, uh, necessarily, which is why, you know, the, the, the goalpost has to stay at the New Hampshire advantage of no income tax, right? No sales tax. Um, and then as, you know, as long as we're moving the goalposts, right, bring down property taxes to zero too, because that's, that's where they get you, at least here, uh, as far as, you know, the, the research that we've been able to do, uh, it's one of the highest property tax rated, um, places, uh, uh, states in the, in the union, um, and if we can, you know, if we can continue, if we're always, if we're only holding the line for no income tax, no sales tax, um, then we're not really moving, moving freedom into the direction of less taxes. Like we have to hold that line and advance at the same time. Uh, when, and what that looks like, I don't know to tell you, um, but hopefully, you know, the, the idea of the article is to always hold that goal, uh, as the vision, right? Zero taxation, um, zero government, uh, you know, zero state oppression in, in all aspects of life. Um, and every, every little victory along the way can be celebrated, uh, but it should not take our eyes off that ball, uh, toward the very end there. Moving on. All right. Next article name the state. Uh, this one is from Jeffrey Tucker. Um, yeah, we'll just read it and then we'll we'll do some commentary. I, I pre-read some of these just to make sure. And this one is basically like, you know, who's to blame for all the nonsense that's going on? Uh, so uh, into the article, the number one problem of all public debate about politics and economics is the failure to name the state. If this would change, so would public opinion. 
There is no shortage of examples. People talk about healthcare for all, solving climate change, providing security in old age, universal educational access, boosting wages, ending discrimination, and you can add to the list without end. That's one side. The other speaks of national identity, protecting jobs, making us more moral, for forming cultural cohesion, providing security against the foreign enemy, and so on. Obfuscation. All of this, no matter how fancy the language, is obfuscation. What all this really means is put the state in charge. What's strange is the unwillingness to say it outright. This is for a reason. The plan the politicians have for our lives would come across as far less compelling if they admitted the following brutal truth. There really are only two ways to allocate goods and services in society. The market, which rely on individual choice, and the state, which runs on compulsion. No one has ever found a third way. You can mix the two. Some markets, some states run operations. Uh, but there, is always, there always is and always will be a toggling between the two. If you replace markets, the result will be more force via the state, which means more, which means bureaucratic administration and rule by force. If you reduce the role of the state, you rely more on markets. This is the logic of political choice, and there is no escaping it. The above paragraph is the great truth of the political economy. I've never seen any evidence to dispute it, and yet there is a great unsayable truth. Seasons of political rhetoric fly by with no frank discussion of what precisely this or that proposal would require of the state and how that will affect our lives, much less a serious analysis of the risks of making a problem worse by replacing market forces. Diversity in Markets to be sure, when I say markets, I don't only mean the money exchange economy in which prices and accounting govern choices. Markets include philanthropy, familial organization, houses of religion, volunteering to work without pay, and everything else in the social order that relies on human volition. There are infinite varieties in the way the market instantiates themselves in human lives. The variations are contingent on culture, norms, traditions, and so on. There can be more or less voluntary ways the market expresses itself, just like there can be more or less coercive forms of statism. But let us not deny that the choice is real. If this is correct, it is strange how much people complain about markets and how little the only alternative is discussed, studied, evaluated, and finally judged. This is because the statist means will always come up short. Depending on the state to deliver some social good, depending on using the threat of violence to compel people to do what they otherwise would not choose to do, there is also no clean path to doing so. The bureaucracy always ends up as the everyday mediator between the individual and the point of a gun. You don't like government. The reason we hear so little frank talk of this subject is that hardly anyone has ever really enjoyed their dealings with a state bureaucracy when it is imposed upon them. You think that the local DMV experience is subpar? Wait until you face your first federal audit or FBI investigation, or seek benefits from some agency, or perhaps you have a relative who is mixed up in the criminal justice system. Whatever it is, no experience in the private sector can compare. It means unpredictable wait times. You aren't really a customer, you are a bother. At best. Objecting to any aspect of the service is most pointed, pointless. Step out of line and you are in trouble. You are a subject and the sullen faces and jury postures of your fellow citizens in line underscores the point. The truth is that no one relishes dealing with the government at any level. Where would you rather be? The driver's license bureau or McDonald's? The school district office or a local bar? A military base or a car plant? The courthouse or the shopping mall? Want to deal with a government cop or a private security guard? There's a pattern here. It's hugely important one. The relationship between the individual and the state versus the same individual and the market is fundamentally different. We all know this intuitively. I personally know no one who relishes dealing with the government. And yet I know plenty of people who support letting government take over every more aspects of our lives, especially when they don't understand that their favorite program means exactly that. How can we make sense of this paradox? Well, most expansions of government powers are pushed without overt public approval, with plenty of deception, and with the unfair advantage that the government itself has in the political process. In other words, it is not necessary that people actively favor government expansion for government to continue its imperial march through society. It only requires a certain level of passive compliance. The TSA. 
The creation of the Department of Homeland Security and the TSA as a centerpiece is a great example. I was talking with Edward Lopez, economic professor at Western Carolina University, about how this came about. We were both around at that time, and we compared notes. How did it happen? Government took advantage of public fear and panic following 9-11 to oppose what government had always wanted. There was private lobbying, too. Plenty of contractors have gotten rich, so their lobbying has paid off. The airlines might have played a role, too, in offloading security liabilities. Anyone who knew the nature of the government could have predicted the result. There have been exploding costs. Individual rights have been violated. Our privacy and constitutional protections have been shredded. Inefficiencies have ballooned. And for what? No credible terrorist threats have really been stopped. Somehow, at the time, this gigantic government apparatus was created. Many people imagined that this time would be different, that government would magically do a better job at securing us than the private sector could or would do. Of course, this time is never actually different. The bureaucracy gets created, and then the people shake their fists at it. But by then, it's actually too late. A bureaucracy created tends not to go away. It gets worse even as it expands and takes on a life of its own. The abuses, wastes, and inefficiencies mount, and no one can do anything about it. What I conclude from this is that the average person lives with the complete mental disconnect when it comes to the government. We don't like dealing with it, we know the truth in our hearts, and yet we keep suspending our incredulity on the belief that the government must be doing something wonderful things somewhere, even if we don't experience it ourselves. Government promises always fall short. Even worse, government wrecks what it touches. Wars increase violence. Moral crusades produce opposite results. Cultural planning backfires. Welfare programs break and fail to serve. Monetary policy from the Fed yields massive financial distortions. Government efforts to protect industry leads to inefficiency, shutdowns, and stagnation. Government security makes us less secure and subjects us to scarcity regimens and spooks and thugs. In other areas of life, we're seeing the rise of massive innovation in the private sector that shows the failure of government. Large companies are generating their own power. Global digital money is making new inroads. Local zoning laws and taxi monopolies are being strained by private initiative. And the daily excitement about private communication systems is breaking down the capacity of political elites to control the conversation. The tendency towards loss of political control has inspired new, more extreme, and more obscurantist forms of selling state control to us. As the dynamics of public versus private continue to shift, we can look forward to ever more obfuscation and the reality of displacing market forces. But once you see what's going on, you can't unsee it. The most effective path towards helping others to see it is simple. Name the state. The bitter truth about most public policies being sold by the political class is that they give them more power to control our lives. If you favor some of these policies, be honest with the rest of us about what you mean so that we can make a more clear-headed judgment about the kind of society we want to live in. Uh, end of the article. And again, this, this kind of goes back to what I was saying at the end of the last one, um, and that's you know keeping the goalpost uh, as far to the extreme as possible. Right. You know, name the state. Right. It's not the left versus the right. It's the state versus the individual or the the state versus you or however however you want to phrase that. Uh, And to be clear, right, if, if it's always markets versus government interference, we must always be pushing for the extreme market side of things. Uh, I, I know I listen to a lot of um, tech-related podcasts, uh, and you know a lot of a lot of those tend to be left-leaning for wh- whatever reason, coming out of Silicon Valley. Uh, and they always push. You know, they always say, "Well, the market isn't strong enough. We need government regulation, right?" Even you know the the Facebook. Uh, fiasco a few weeks ago of Zuckerberg asking for the state to intervene and regulate uh, what is and isn't considered acceptable content online uh, just highlights that even more, right? It's, it's, you know, it's not taking responsibility for your own actions. It's removing the individual from being responsible and it's putting the onus on the state to control every aspect of those lives. Uh, and, in, and in, you know, in this case, and in many cases, it's them not wanting to outright say it, right? But that they want control and then that's how they get it. Um, I think the next article that I'm going to get into, yeah, let's do that one next, um, is about who actually writes those laws that are then imposed and forced upon and shoved down your throat, you know, um, and it's usually people who, you know, want control and want power that, you know, the big corporations, uh, if you, if you're one of those, I'm going to say conspiracy theorists, I know it's true, um, but it's still one of those things where, you know, it's, it's, 
depending on your perspective, right? The ANCOMs, the, the socialists, the communists, they always blame the big corporations. Um, and they, they don't take that next step further in my mind. And when, what I consider like the ANCAP point of view and they go, well, if you remove the government from the equation, right, then those, those big corporations can't lean on that state apparatus, uh, to control your life right they, they they need that apparatus in place to pass all the controls um and and you know I, yeah, yeah controls to that impact your life uh most right the other side of thing you know is is you know so they want to remove the corporation um but they leave the apparatus in place right they go like well somebody's going to be in control as long as it's not the big corporations then it's you know it's the people in control, right? That's the the big lie uh, about American democracy is that the people are in control, and you're not, right? So, someone's in control. It's definitely not you, because if it were you, um, you would be there, right? You'd be at the, the top of that pecking order, the top of the food chain, the, the top of the hierarchy. Um, if, again, if you're one of those people, and you're just not, and and so not being it, you know, leads me to believe that I I want the apparatus removed because I don't want anybody in charge of me, whether it's the corporations uh, or the state. And I know that if by removing the state apparatus, um, the corporations don't have the power mechanism to, to lean on, right? Zuckerberg won't be able to squash any competitional uprising in the marketplace simply because he can get regulation passed that he can abide by um, and that they won't be able to. He has to actually continue to compete in the marketplace uh, for products, services, and ideas in order to survive and thrive. And that's that's where I want regulation to take place uh, at the market level, right? I want people to be given a fair choice. I want competition to be able to enter the market. Uh, and I want people to be able to decide which corporations or companies or businesses or mom and pop shops that they want to support uh, without government interfering in that mechanism at all. Um, was it, It's come up... Uh, it's come up, um, you know, w- with regarding the internet that it should be regulated as a, uh, a utility, right? Like the, the big companies and corporations, because internet is a necessity now in modern American life, uh, that it be, it be treated like a utility, which means access for everybody. Right. And then, and, and regulated as such. And they go, well, the, the corporations, you know, big cable is out of control uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, internet service and prices, and they need to be reined in uh, by the state in order to protect the consumers. And it's another one of the issues where people miss, you know, miss the the overarching idea that the reason uh, big cable is in charge uh, is because the they're granted the monop- uh, territorial monopoly, right? There, there's only one cable company usually in your area. And then, you know, the, the phone company through internet service um, has attempted to compete with that in some places by offering, um, you know, internet based television over the phone lines and DSL and that sort of thing. So now there's two, right? Um, but if you didn't have the, the, the state granted territorial monopoly over those services, uh, you could see competitors pop up innumerably in every area uh, to compete with those and that you know may not always be the best right like will the with a new local cable company be better than comcast and offer more choices at a lower price maybe maybe not but it would force comcast or you know your local service provider um, cox or whoever it happens to be to compete with those local startups um, and if they compete on price, maybe, you know, maybe they drive the locals out of business, uh, but then you get lower prices as a consumer, right? So you benefit. And people will say, you know, well, well they'll, they'll just monopolistically price gouge and put all the other competitors out of business. And one of the things I learned from, you know, uh, college economics, right? The one thing that stuck is uh, those natural monopolies uh, can't, sus- can't sustain over time because, the moment Comcast starts to raise the price back up, uh, they open themselves up to competition again because you know if once once profitability is is foreseen, uh, someone will enter the market and try to you know try to take some of that uh, profit away. Um, so there's no there's no maintaining that monopoly for very long. Um, otherwise, you maintain the lower prices for long, and again, good for consumers. So when it comes to you know market-based regulation versus state-based regulation, I'm always in favor of consumers regulating companies uh, and and not the state doing it because I always think that that adds value uh, to the consumers and to customers in general uh, because you don't have the overarching state interfering. So. 
naming the state uh, is a big part of that, right? You go like, well, who's who's holding you down? Who's your oppressor? Well, it's it's not Walmart and Starbucks, man. <laughs> it, it's your local government. So if you're going to be bomb-throwing anarchists, uh, aim at the right building. Moving on. All right. Um, I'm, I, even though I just... <laughs> I, I just pushed it and like you know i'm gonna bury the lead here i'm gonna skip the next article because apparently um it's a lot longer than i allowed time for um so let's do this one instead the elon mordita uh and mostly because i I think i can squeeze this one in in the in the remaining time available uh but also it somewhat highlights what i'm talking about and that's you know the idea of corporations using the government um to control others, including other companies. So the Elon Mordita. Extortion is illegal, provided you call it that. If you call it something else, quote-unquote emissions credits, for instance, then it's okay. Tesla just extorted several hundred million dollars from Fiat Chrysler via this legal means of extortion. FCA is forced to pay Elon for not building enough electric cars, which people don't want to buy, but which don't produce that deadly inert gas, carbon dioxide, which the cars uh, Fiat Chrysler sells without subsidies do. These CO2 emissions, which every living soul on the earth also emits with every respiration, have been hystericized into a planetary threat for political reasons. An inert gas, but one essential to life on this earth, has been rebranded into an emission, a term which once meant harmful byproducts, things which had to be cleaned up for the sake of public health. But carbon dioxide isn't dirty. It causes no smog, does not settle on the surface of things and turn them brown. It makes breathing easier because it is vital to the respiration of plants, which produce the oxygen we require for our continued respiration. It is, however, a handy bogeyman because it's one that could, can't be, excuse me. It is, however, a handy bogeyman because it's one that can't be dissipated. Not without turning off almost everything that is powered by an engine in favor of things which are powered by motors. Even then, emissions of CO2 would continue to be emitted by us via our mouths and by other natural things such as volcanoes which emit in one eruption more CO2 than all the CO2 emitted by Fiat Chrysler's entire lineup of vehicles ever emitted. The volume of CO2 emitted by our machines is akin to coughing in the Superdome relative to the volume of CO2 emitted by natural machinery. The atmospheric concentration of CO2 today is hundreds of parts per million less than it was at the height of life's greatest abundance on this earth, which was many millions of years ago and so long before the first Model T came off the line. How much has the climate actually changed? Uh, There has been a measured rise in average temperatures of around one degree over the past hundred years and lately since 1998 going back in the other direction. This change being well within the nimbus of the climate's nature, factual observed historic tendency to modulate over time. Whether man is rubbing sticks together to make fire or driving Model Ts or not even in this picture yet. See ice cores. See air bubble samples within, dating from long ago. Or see Dr. John Bates' public whistleblowing about the blatant attempt to intensify the impact of supposed global warming, which has become a climate change precisely because the climate has been cooling once again. Bates is no science guy like Bill Nye, who has a mechanical engineering degree and asserts based on his understanding of gears and such, one assumes that the climate is changing. Bates is a climate scientist who worked for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Asheville, North Carolina. He told the Daily Mail and anyone else who would listen that his objections to the political science being peddled by NOAA were ignored deliberately so that the direst predictions of imminent planetary catastrophe could be maximized in advance of the UN's climate change summit in Paris. Anyone could look these and other relevant facts up, but few do. There is something pathological about end-stage Western civilization, which seems bent on a suicidal course because its population has been dumbed down into a state of gadget adults, stupefactions, and virtue signaling. The virtues, the virtues being signaled telegraphed into brains which have been conditioned to regard conformity as the highest of all virtues. 
It has become a religion, which of course is a matter of faith, not fact. One must believe, preferably, ardently. Also, profitability. Profitably. Enter Elon. He extorts credit from Fiat Chrysler and others who use these credits to tamp down the total volume of carbon dioxide emissions produced by vehicles they sell and thus achieve what is styled regulatory compliance with the CO2 fatwas. The money, thus multitud, goes not just from Fiat Chrysler's account into Elon's, but also from the pockets of people buying Fiat Chrysler vehicles, which become progressively more expensive to buy in order to offset the cost of the Elon Mordita. Tesla also gets subsidized once again and pretend to be going and can pretend to be a going concern as opposed to the parasitical entity it actually is. Think of a tick growing fat on just that spot on your dog's back he can't quite reach, and which has become fatwad safe space the vet isn't allowed to touch. Worst of all, though, this doggy reverence for the tick displayed by Fiat Chrysler. The company is committed to reducing the emissions of all our products, a statement reads. The purchase pool provides flexibility to deliver products our customers are willing to buy while managing compliance with the lowest cost approach. Everyone wants to be polite. No one wants to raise a stink. But a point comes when it is no longer tolerable to placate the bully. He must be stood up to. Uh, not Elon. He is just an opportunistic parasite, and one can't blame a tick for seeking a warm host, full of even warmer blood to suck. It is what ticks do. But Uncle and every accomplice peddling the lies about carbon dioxide emissions had better be stood up to, and not just by Fiat Chrysler. Uh, AOC is just around the corner, or someone, that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, or someone just like her, just as bad. The emperor has no clothes. Who will be the first to say? End of the article. See, and I'm, I, I, I agree with him on where Elon Musk ranks, uh, you know, in, in the world. And that is, he's mostly a parasite, a government crony. Uh, the only credit that I can ever give Elon is as a visionary. Um, and this goes back to a longstanding position that I hold and have held on this show. And that is the mechanism, the, how we go about, uh, achieving our vision is as important, if not more so, than the vision itself. So I believe that Elon has a vision uh, for what he wants the future to be, right? And he works very, very hard uh, in order to manifest that vision uh, into reality, however he does it. Um, the problem is, is the however he does it. And it's usually um, at the detriment to other companies, other industries, uh, in favor of his, you know, government cronyism and whether that's uh you know currently tesla um which you know uh, needed some bailout money initially to produce cars that uh not that nobody wants um but that wouldn't be as financially viable uh if you had to take into account their true cost versus uh you know the, the subsidized cost that people get um you know in tax credits for running an electric vehicle not to mention all the breaks that he gets including these uh you know emissions credits from other companies uh to to keep his production line uh and his company going so it's it's not always it's not always about um what your goal is, but how you're achieving that. And I think this, this is another uh, example of that. Um, and, you know, it, and this is another case of just like before, if you get rid of the state apparatus, you know, if you get rid of the tool that Elon Musk's Elon Musk uses uh, to achieve his goal, well, then he has to compete, right? Will, will, would Tesla's be viable um, if he didn't have, you know, the, the, the government grants or the, um, the tax credits for people to buy them, right? Would he be able to price them as competitively as he has, even if, you know, they seem to be overpriced supercars, right? Maybe, because, you know, there might be a market for those, uh, but would, would as many people be willing to pay? Would he be as popular uh, with, with those products um, if he wasn't able to offer that? Right? How much would it, how much is the true cost? Uh, not to mention that in, in most places, what goes over a lot of people's heads um, that they think they're being so green is where 
where is the energy coming from um, to power those electric vehicles, right? And in a lot of places, it's still coal, uh, which, you know, doesn't burn as clean as, uh, you know, other forms, um, you know, gasoline, right? You, you get a coal-powered power plant to run the electricity that you plug your electric car into, and you feel like such a great person for doing something for the environment, um, and yet you're not, right? It's, it's worse off, plus building... Uh, I want building the, the factories, the plants, the, the supercharged locations and all those other things um, never get taken into account because, oh, my God, it's Elon and he's such a visionary. And, you know, this, <laughs> despite his Twitter outrages, you know, outbursts, um, it, you know, to to hide the, the evils that he's doing um, and, and sites like this one, Eric Peters Auto, where I got the article from, are one of the few good sources to highlight um, the bad stuff um, that comes with being a crony capitalist, um, such as Elon Musk, along with, you know, better solutions on how to do it in the future, which again is to put more efforts into the market and taking less responsibility or oversight away from the state. Um, sweet. I hit my mark on time. Congratulations to me. Uh, that'll do it for me. You know where to find us, uh, anarchistexperience.com. Hopefully we'll have MC back, uh, Maybe not uh, by the next show, but hopefully within a couple of shows, if his family situation, um, you know, Im- improves. Um, but uh, anarchistexperience.com in the meantime, uh, minds.com slash the anarchist experience. And if, if you want to uh, throw some money my way to, because uh, why not? What, what else are you really going to spend on? Come on, let's let, let's let the market decide. Well, you've already decided. Anyway, uh, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you all next week. Peace.